0: Welcome to the Canadian Orthodox Podcast, a show devoted to the exploration of the Christian faith in all of its mystery and diversity within the unique intersections of the Canadian context. Today's episode is a roundtable discussion recorded a few weeks back with Chris, Doug, and myself, reflecting on our previous interview with Brad Jerzak. If you haven't already listened to that episode, I would highly recommend going back and checking it out. I think that this conversation really highlighted what we found so refreshing and engaging with Jerzak, and I hope that it can be a meaningful way for you to participate in further reflection within the various discussions that you are a part of. As a note, this will be the only episode that we release for this month, as I'll be taking a little break away from this while my wife and I prepare to pack up our little basement apartment in Black Diamond, Alberta, to move to Vancouver in just a few short weeks. We'll be back in August, though, with a great conversation I recorded with Abbotsford-based singer-songwriter Brian Dirksen that I'm really stoked to share with you, along with more interviews coming down the pipe later in the month. We want to thank all of you who have been following along with this project over the past few weeks. For those of you who have sent in feedback, who have shared it and passed it around in the midst of the conversations that you're a part of, your support means so much and we are so excited to be able to have you with us as we explore the possibilities of a contextualized Christian faith here in Canada. I think something, even just to set this up, a couple things that I really appreciated when we started this conversation with Brad was like, first of all, how much the things that he was speaking about, in a certain sense, we were we were talking about kind of like high-level points that he's written about in several several books that he's, he's authored at this point. Um, but the thing that I appreciated was like, rather than kind of presenting these high-level theological like concepts in terms of abstract, is that there was a lot of a sense of what this means for a grounded lived out practice of those things and how much even things like the his process of entering into the orthodox community came from lived relation as opposed to you know a particular argument that was that was accepted and then also from my vantage point, I know uh, Chris had some some different uh, a, a different experience of this, but how surprisingly orthodox I think he felt to me as I was entering into that conversation, and like so I knew that there was already a strong influence of patristic theology in a lot of the things that he's written. And I was aware that he was a part of an Orthodox community as the place that he worshipped and would consider his affiliation. But from my vantage point, I think like I expected a lot more of the kind of jaded ex-evangelical post-deconstruction uh, kind of like way of way of engaging in conversation. And so for him to kind of like fully own the Orthodox tradition and um, to a large extent speak from the vantage point of that tradition as something that was fully embraced, I think was just really refreshing to engage with that kind of sincerity and ownership of the tradition that one one is a part of. Um, so I found a lot of the conversation really refreshing as we jump into our, uh, reflection on this conversation. Um, well, we'll start by opening up, um, just with the question of what we found compelling or or what stood out to you guys, um, in the midst of that conversation.
1: Yeah, actually to just piggyback off what you were saying about Jurzak sounding so surprisingly orthodox to you. Uh, what I thought was significant was how, um, very much not orthodox he sounded like to me um <laughs> and that wasn't to say that his words were not or, or or the ideas that he was putting out were not orthodox actually quite the opposite the the words and the ideas that he was using were extraordinarily orthodox um i caught myself a few times during the interview thinking like oh that's just athanasius or oh that's maximus or oh yeah i just read that in basil like you said there was deep patristics kind of all throughout everything he was saying but yeah, what I, what I thought was really, really interesting was that the way that he was saying those things was in a deeply, or was in a way that I didn't, I had never heard an Orthodox person speak about them before. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, the people that I know who are Orthodox, including um, my priest, a, a few other really close friends, um, and of course other priests and deacons who have kind of come through Calgary during my time um, in the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox community here in Calgary is that they all have a there there's a cadence to their voice there's a particularly particular choice of words there's a way of interacting with you know it's it's something that you don't really realize until you until you're talking to them but there's almost a, a way of of working with your vision and working with like the physicality of who you are as a human to like c- converse with you um mm. in other words they have really interesting nonverbal language um but <laughs> it was jurzak's uh, in, in this interview um he didn't sound like he was approaching or the words that he was using, the way that he was communicating, it was really not what I had experienced in the Orthodox community at all. It, it was far more akin to what I've experienced in the evangelical church. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seemed a lot more like I was talking to a pastor, which I suppose was suitable considering he came from that background. And, you know, then that must've just resonated with me somehow, but it was really cool to hear somebody like that with language like that say things that were athanasian and say things that were from basil and say things that were from maximus i think that was particularly compelling um Mm. as i said before we kind of jumped into all of this i think the reason why it was so compelling to me was that you know for us three sitting down here as well as with our friends trying to work out what this whole Canadian orthodoxy thing is, he was just kind of going out and doing it. He wasn't really concerned about the development of Canadian orthodoxy. Like, you know, is is scratching our brains or itching our brains so much. Um, He was just living what Canadian orthodoxy is. And I Mm. thought that was really, really cool. And I don't think, I don't think there's probably, I don't think there's a better example of being able to do that than to have the kind of conversion story that he has and mm. be orthodox within the midst of all of that, right?
0: Yeah. I I was curious and and I was really excited to hear hear your advantage point cuz like I'm, you know, I'm listening to this as someone who's very much very much interested in and in wanting to hear from the orthodox tradition, but I'm not, you know, I'm not approaching that from somebody within it. So was really curious to hear you know, the specifics of, of how you experience as someone who's a part of that community, but also like the fact that like Jerzak, you're also a convert, um, to, to orthodoxy. And so maybe as even like a follow-up is like, as he described his own story of conversion, what were, what were some of the things that stood out to you particularly in that?
1: I found myself picturing myself within his own story. Mm Um, like he's like, oh yes, you know, for 20 years I was a Baptist. Then I went off to college and I met my wife and, You know, we went and were priests and, or pardon me, we went and we were pastors. And then we, you know, went to Orthodoxy. I I kind of pictured that whole, like, development because I've heard, I think before that we went off and became Orthodox bit, I've heard that story so many times. Um, Mm. And I'm kind of like, going to Ambrose, you know, faith-inspired learning, I think means that (laughs) all three of us, particularly you, Tim, who's been to more than just Ambrose, um, with uh with all of us having gone there we know the we know the narrative of you know grow up evangelical to grow up protestant go to bible college um get something go be a pastor particularly like a youth pastor and then go do something else right Mm -hmm. um so i saw myself picturing that and also feeling what it was like to be in my early 20s and be dis be disillusioned with this kind of and, and, and wrestling with this this thing that was evangelical Christianity, which is not a rare thing. Again, we've mm. all gone to Bible college. We all know what, what this looks like. But when he said, yeah, you know, I we went off and did this and then, you know, I, I met a priest and I said, I just can't do this penal, this penal substitutionary thing anymore. And he's like, well, yeah, of course you can't. Like, that's it's heretical. <laughs> it's, um, that was the way that he talked about how liberating that was, was acutely familiar. Um, mm. But not because my priest was really the one who was opening the door up to me in that. I remember my priest told me, um, I was talking to him, I think, well, maybe a year, year and a half after I met him. I was sitting down in his, in his office and we were reminiscing over like when I first showed up there. Cause we were at that point talking about like, okay, I'm going to get chrismated. Let's figure that out. And he said to me, he's like, yeah you know, Chris, when you first came in here and you said, you know, I'm dating this girl and, you know, I'm, and she was, you know, Kat was telling father Peter, Oh yeah, he's interested in orthodoxy. You know, he, he told me, he's like, yeah, when I heard that, I went, yeah, right. He's really interested in orthodoxy because he has, he had so many like guys that would come through and their, their, you know, partners would be like, he's really, really interested. And they'd sit down, they'd get chrismated they get married and then he never see them again, right? So he just looked at me and he's like, okay, here we go. And then I sit down and I really, like the first thing I tell him is like, so like, what's the, like, do you have any really interesting like views on the nuances of like the, the Council of Nicaea? And he's like, okay, well, at least you know about the Council of Nicaea. Um, But he just wanted to like run me out of his office because he's like, I don't care. Like you don't, you don't care. I don't care. And it it took some time for him to realize that, oh, actually this kid, (laughs) this kid, I mean, I was already 23, 24 at that time. I was already 25 at that time. Um, But like this guy actually, you know, gives a shit about this stuff and actually maybe does really like this orthodoxy thing and is really interested in it. Um, so when Jurzak was saying like, oh yeah, there was this really great priest to kind of like open up the door to me. Um, for me, it was like, oh, there's this really great priest who like really blatantly thought that I wanted nothing to do with orthodoxy. I was just there to get some, right? Like, <laughs> so whatever, um, whatever that door finally did get broken down and it did sometimes feel like I was breaking down Father Peter's door. So if he ever listens to that, you know, takes on that Father Peter, um, <laughs> but whenever that door finally did get broken down and <clears throat> we were sitting and we were talking about, you know, Maximus and we were sitting and talking about like the real genius that was these Christological controversy thinkers and, <clears throat> and, you know, what each of the, what, what the church councils were doing to each other. And, um, and how it was creating this Orthodox thing and what really was important and what wasn't important. Um, that was really liberating because mm-hmm. I finally within Orthodoxy got to see the breadth of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I And that was a really incredible thing. You know, when Jerzak was saying like, it was really freeing to not be held to the, you know, to the shackles of penal substitutionary theory. Right. Like, <laughs> um, there's, I, I couldn't agree more with them. Whenever you enter into orthodoxy, I think that's why we say Canadian orthodoxy. And we're like, well, we have to include everything because orthodoxy as a very dear friend of mine once said is uh, never ending. It's more complicated than rocket science. There's always another question. Um, mm. So when Jurzak was saying like, yeah, it's really, really freeing. I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly the experience I had. I've never felt more capable of becoming human than mm-hmm. when I
0: became Orthodox. Yeah. Doug, what were, what were some things that stood out to you?
2: I think the, the thing that stood out to me the most, I'd have to say, is... I mean, the, we've been talking about it using the term the, the sort of aesthetics of his mm-hmm. language, the aesthetics of his uh, world of Christianity, I suppose, if you will. Because of the way that Jurzak talks about things he uses familiar language um, probably to most Christians these terms aren't totally unfamiliar some of them might be sort of termed differently
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, or you may think uh, say something like uh, talking about penal substitutionary theory is sort of that's that's what's bandied about in theology circles not necessarily the sort of laity of a church but they're all things we've heard before ideas that we've heard before. But the world behind that language is totally different. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not totally convinced that it's even recognizable to sort of the vast majority of, say, churches that I've been to, for example. Like, his his world where God is, where wrath means something other than an emotional response from God, right? That's just utterly foreign talking about... Um, being able to be penitent and be saved from beyond death is just totally unfamiliar, uh, bordering on unacceptable, depending on the church that you go to, of course, but just different, shockingly different in a lot of ways, right? Um, So I, I don't know. I found it fascinating because of that, this world that's being created by him that I've grown to become more and more familiar with Um, like reading the church fathers, reading monastics, things like that. And so it all sounded very normal and sane. And yeah, he's just redefining language. Don't worry. He's just totally redefining the way that Christians should see the Christian imagination and the universe as God operates. Just minor things like that. Don't be too uncomfortable. There's nothing to worry about here, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's just funny to think that way, right? Is like I was really familiar sitting on the other end of that. And I was like, you know, it'll be interesting trying to think of something that I could push back on here. Because this all just feels so comfortable. And then I tried to imagine some of my friends, some of my family sitting and listening to it. And I'm like, I could understand why some people would call me a heretic if they thought that I was fully endorsing this, which, you know, sorry, friends and family, but I do (laughs) like, I I really do endorse a lot of it. I think it's fascinating to redefine the world that way, but it's, Mm. it's just, yeah, it's so, so shockingly different. Right. Um, Imagining God as someone who experiences wrath in the way of a letting go, as opposed to an anger, doesn't make a lot of sense when we've approached the Bible from this um, North American English interpretation, for example, right? You sit down, you read wrath, you go, wrath is an emotion. It's connected to anger. When you're angry, you lash out. And it says that God lashed out in this way. Therefore, this is the way that that it means, right? It's simple. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's right in front of it. It's available. Um you know, uh, some people could argue, why are you adding in this, this layer of complexity that's totally unnecessary? We already understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, but the significance of what Jerzak has to say is entirely dependent on how significant you think the history of the church is, right? Um, if the church fathers are just another group of guys who happen to have lived, like, closer to Jesus' time than us and Christianity is an ongoing conversation, but there's no first among equals, it's just we're all a bunch of equals, and there's a certain level of further understanding we have because we're later on in history and we have more resources, then the world Jerzak is putting together means very, very little, right? I mean, I'm not personally of of that persuasion, but the world that he's creating means very little. If the church fathers are... You know, the first people who happened to put their heads together and figure out some basics, and that was very nice of them, right? Um, but the, this sort of Christian imagination that's being formed here by Jerzak is one that takes the church fathers to be people who are writing things of such significance and thinking things of such significance that the way that they perceived the world— actually gives ground for the way that we must continue seeing the world Mm. and you see that in his language because again like like chris said he he talks like an evangelical while describing a totally different universe than the one that Mm. we've created with the language that we use right yeah um so yeah i don't know like that was the most compelling thing to me was the the fact that those two things could be married right where I'm not reading a monastic giving you sort of a short form story about the way that a Christian should behave. I'm listening to somebody talk about how, well, that's just a bullshit heresy. And and he's talking about orthodoxy, like that that's an acceptable way <laughs> to talk about the Christian imagination and orthodoxy. <laughs> and it was a little jarring initially. Like, I mean, I... I don't have anything in particular that if somebody swears, then their theology is off. It was just this very surprising experience that was like, wow, okay. Uh, I mean, I thought I was the only one with license to do that. (laughs) 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 It's my thing. He took my thing, guys. (laughs) I mean, in all fairness, he's probably been doing it 20 years longer, so... (laughs) I'll give him that one. <laughs> but, yeah. I don't know. Like it, it, it is compelling. It is compelling to think about that. Uh, mm-hmm. We, I think most people that I know, regardless of if they agree or not, what Jerzak would say that what he is striving for is still striving for Christianity, mm-hmm. but his world and our description of the world look so radically different. How could they possibly exist? Like even in the same hemisphere, and you're yeah. like, well, in all fairness, they didn't start there. So don't worry too much about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I feel you. And in a lot of ways, I was reminded, I think, not even just in the conversation, but I think like listening back to it before we recorded this conversation, um, taking some of the maybe we could call them, like, traditional evangelical tenets. Like, a lot of the things that he, um, in the conversation with Jerzak that he's quite free to say, you know, we have permission to let these things go. Like, we have permission to let go of these images of a wrathful, you know, death-dealing God, or to let go of, you know, literal, literal flames in a lake of fire, or to let go of penal substitution. And... When I when I think back to participation, or not participation, as much as, you know, assent to those things, that for, you know, the three of us, it's been a process of a number of years, but we're we're quite firmly on the other side of those those kinds of questions. But when I think back to when I used to hold to those things stronger, that does feel very much like a foreign world, um, and a foreign imagination of the world. Like even as he was describing, um, You know, being able to see and perceive the church as a hospital for healing, as opposed to a courtroom, that really resonated as a different kind of imagination for how the universe works. Um, Because if we're imagining ultimate reality in terms of the metaphors that we described as, you know, the courtroom of heaven and, and... thinking about the mechanisms of salvation directed towards that particular end, the way that I felt in that world was fundamentally different than the way that I see and seek to imagine the world today. And even as a part of that, like when he was describing, I mean, it was super amusing. And and so like sent that into the chat as we had our, our group text going, um, as I was going through the edit, when he was talking about, you know, the conversation with... Um, Archbishop, Archbishop Lazar uh, Pohalo and saying, you know, I'm I'm struggling with penal substitution. I feel like I'm letting go of these things. And for um, Archbishop Pohalo's response to be like, well, yeah, like we're not even allowed to believe that. And to imagine a universe where it's like, you know, this thing that is considered fundamental to you know, penal substitution, something fundamental to the way that we imagine and the metaphors that were ingrained, I think for all of us in, you know, differing, different measures and different capacities, but like the, the default reduction of the gospel that we inherited was penal substitution. And we had to work to imagine or to, to find or discover like, uh, different articulations of that, but to come in contact with you know, a universe of 300 and something million people for whom that's just not an option is totally mind-boggling. And to imagine the ways that even for these 300 million people to say the word salvation or to talk about being saved or to talk about um, the mercy of God just is to conjure up a completely different imaginative reality and even a cosmology compared to, you know, certainly the world and the universe that I inhabited. And I, I feel like when I, when I even consider my deconstruction process, a lot of that experience of deconstruction felt like frustration with those kinds of frameworks of reality and then giving permission to let go of that, thinking that in terms of a lot of the conversations that I've been having the past number of months with different um, different people in my life who are kind of on this trajectory of deconstruction, you know, as as I mentioned in the conversation with Jerzak, being, it's really refreshing to be able to be in conversation with them and to be able to say, you know, actually there is another option. There's another way of seeing the world that you actually have permission to open yourself up to. And even in the sense that, you know, we, when we when we were talking about ultimate reconciliation or ultimate judgment, like what does that mean and and what does that look like? There's a certain playfulness, I think, in a lot of the way that Jerzak has engaged in that conversation, because when you're free from this kind of dogmatism, where. You know, you need to have a certainty about all of these elements of theology, and that certainty has to be described to this particular inherited cultural articulation. When you're able to let go of that, there's a certain freedom and a playfulness to say, you know, what if it looks like what if it looks like a giant truth and reconciliation commission? Like, um, you're able to ask those questions like, what if, without needing to attach that to a kind of certainty.
2: Yeah. And part of the value there, just as a as a quick interjection that I really appreciated was, you know, his comment of, oh, I mean, how do how do I do this? I'm letting go of these things. I'm becoming a flaming liberal. Mm. And when you're talking about letting go of those cultural bases, right, because I know that if I expressed, say, Jerzak's views in a lot of the churches that I've been a part of, the response would be, oh, you're just another flaming liberal.
0: Yeah, you've crossed the line between, like, you know, the conservative, you've just moved, you've moved to the left wing. That's all you've done.
2: I mean, A, like, all due respect, folks, you can't get more conservative than the orthodox church.
0: (laughs) (laughs) By definition.
2: You can you can talk about politics all you want. Maybe maybe politically you can argue about where they stand, but in terms of Christian tradition, it doesn't get more conservative than that. But on top of that, um, it's it's talking about shifting from again imagination to imagination, from universe to universe, mm-hmm. not from uh, one side of the political spectrum to another. And mm. he, he was accidentally very, very clear on that. I, I don't know if Jerzak was even intending that, to be honest. But th- he left this very obvious hook in there that's like, this isn't me becoming a liberal Christian politically or, or theologically after being a conservative Christian in either of those ways. This mm. is me reimagining the universe through the eyes of the church fathers. Mm. And and you can term that however you'd like. If you'd like to say, because in that case that allows me to even consider the idea of some sort of universal salvation, therefore I am a liberal. Um, Mm -hmm. You can use that language if it helps you, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it's not, um, I would argue that it's not technically accurate, right? Because again, this is about a, a, a Christian aesthetic. This is about the universe behind language that's more significant than just whether or not you believe in a literal hell, right? This this is something mm. that moves beyond that. And so yeah. tacking on these sort of political affiliations or or whether or not you're a conservative enough Christian really misses the point. Um, and, and I think you did a really good job of almost accidentally highlighting that, right? That this isn't something that is us all going, well, to be a, you know, an Orthodox Christian, you must be liberal as a Christian, right? it's Mm -hmm. it's not what anybody is really digging Mm -hmm. at so i don't know that that just interested me as well
0: yeah well and there's there is so much of a liberation from that binary even when we are talking about you know available options for how to think about you know ultimate reconciliation or or judgment there's this liberation from the the binary between it. It has to be an infernalist vision of an eternal conscious torment, or it has to be hippie Jesus where everything's like nothing matters. Everything's okay. We're all good. And it's, it's liberating to not have to be situated within that binary and to know that the world is bigger than that binary.
1: Yeah. I think it's really important to think about when we're talking about Orthodox Christians is that, They don't just care about, or we as Orthodox Christians ought not just care about um, the church history that happened from, like, the death of Christ until the year 600, you know? Mm. Like, I I think if we were to do that, we'd be making the same mistake that, you know, every Protestant church has made um, for the past hundred years yes I know friends and family will not be happy with this but joke's on them I don't have many Protestant friends and family left so you guys enjoy the kickback on this one and I'll have fun talking to my atheist friends Um, it's I'll be right back actually I got something that I'm going to have to bring up and I got to quote it right from the book
2: (laughs) Chris is just gonna he's gonna have it out at our expense whenever possible (laughs) we signed up for this
1: you guys want to hear the orthodox perspective have I got a perspective for you there's this really great line that I gotta find it's really important as orthodox Christians that we don't just think about the first 600 years of Christian history because there's more to Christian history than just the first 600 years Mm. um and and Orthodox Christians like Jurzak, um hold kind of in balance that tension of, you know, knowing their Athanasius and kind of the discussion of the cosmic Christianity. Um, knowing their Basil and that every and, and how to treat other human beings, and knowing their Maximus and having read the 400 chapters on love which is astoundingly good, by the way. Everybody, I think, should probably read those. Um, but with all of that and all of the grace and mercy that's combined with that, they, we also know and hold an extraordinarily high regard um, St. John Climacus with the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And this, you know, <laughs> this writing that, I don't know, have you guys ever seen the, the iconography for the Ladder of Divine Ascent?
0: hmm yeah
1: yeah um i don't know maybe we should put that in the description of this one but
0: we'll throw that into the show notes so people know what uh chris is talking about
1: so we also hold that to be i think my priest said that said to me once the latter divine ascent is his favorite bit of iconography he says it's the most beautiful bit of iconography mm-hmm. um maximus even says during his 400 chapters of love um that it's like, or no? Pardon me. Basil says um, in his on social justice that uh, for a rich person not to be helping somebody is like they they've left on a really long journey and they've been traveling to this amazing place and they get within touching distance of the door and decide that they're going to stop at the end just in front of the build, just in front of the city, and they wait their entire lives there. Um, and Saint John Climacus says. All who enter upon the good fight, which is hard and close, but also easy, must realize that they must leap into the fire, if they really expect the celestial fire to dwell in them. But let everyone examine himself, and so let him eat the bread of it with its bitter herbs, and let them drink the cup of it with its tears, lest his service lead to his own judgment. My very favorite line. If everyone who has been baptized has not been saved... I shall be silent about what follows. And it's this really, that last sentence is really interesting because it means that if every baptized person is not saved, so the same can be said about monks and not all who have made the vows are real monks and will be saved. But Mm -hmm. I prefer to pass over this matter in silence. So Mm -hmm. there's still this question of like, what does salvation even mean?
0: Mm -hmm. What is
1: goodness? How do we work with that? And there's still this really real recognition within that orthodox thought that, like, we don't know how to think beyond there being some kind of retribution. And mm. we know that there is this retribution involved with this, but we don't know what that really means. We don't even know if it's a human sense of retribution. And we also have the divine, ladder of divine ascent iconography, which wrestles with that tension of we're climbing the ladder of divine ascent while demons attempt to pull us off and throw us into the pits of hell. And the guy who is credited with that iconography is talking about how I don't know what salvation means and I really want to be free of this. So Mm. yeah, like as Orthodox Christians, there's that and there's Mm. also Basil. I I think Jerzak holds that tension and really and a really beautiful balance in that he's talking about like, yeah, I'm finally free of penal substitution. And I can think about these other things, Mm. and they're also really important, and that I also don't necessarily, you don't need to hold these other things that I hold in order to be orthodox. Mm. Um, No, it's like breathing fresh ocean air for the first time and going like, oh, this is like, this is the real entrance into like reality. It's like, you can't, you feel the freedom that's, that's kind of on there. Um, Yeah. So I don't know with, with that in mind, like, I, I don't think the evangelicals are totally wrong to think that like, wait a second, we should like kind of blink at this once or twice. Um, yeah. but I also think that they're really wrong to not know why they should blink at it once or twice. <laughs> um, because <laughs> like, you kind of have to read your basil to know that the latter divine ascent is both one of the most important writings in modern Christian thought and mid kind of medieval Christian thought. Um, but is, you know, right in the the same kind of category, the rest of the patristics where a lot of it's really easy to swallow and a lot of it's really hard to swallow. And it's all part Mm -hmm. of this big circle that is theosis and this development, you know, Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm really looking forward to purgatory, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, and, and the interesting thing, like to your point is that you don't need to become, or I'll rephrase that. You don't need to become a member of the Orthodox community or necessarily to, you know, fully identify as like, you know, I am, I'm Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox or, or whatnot. Like you don't have to, you don't have to fully become a part of that church community to embrace the imagination that's being presented there and the possibility of transformation that that imagination presents. Um, so even in terms of that, you know, as good Protestants were were taught the certainty in salvation relative to, you know, you, you say the prayer, and you believe or assent to the right articles of belief and that ensures that you're able to go to this heaven place and when you do away with that there is that mystery and unknowing and what you're describing chris of the you know i will be silent on this matter i don't really know i don't really know where what, what's going to happen and so you're you're able to have this really interesting mystery that's you know as as jurzak described the expectation of the dread throne of judgment, but at the same time, the knowledge and awareness that that throne of judgment is the mercy seat, which is the cross, and there's uncertainty, and yet there's hope, but not hope as in like, I would really like it to be the case that there is ultimate reconciliation, but hope in the person of Jesus who has disclosed the heart of God as that cruciform, self-giving love, And that's something that you can embrace and that can become suffused wherever you are within the spectrum of, of traditional Christianity. And to be able to encounter that without having an argument for participation in a denomination, even if maybe that could exist there in the background where it's like, well, you know, you could come and be a part of the community where all of this is accepted, like, um, that's really that's really refreshing and that's in many ways like really it's really compelling the possibilities that that presents beyond this idea of or beyond the question of which denomination I need to be a part of The
2: other the other significant thing that I would mention is that uh, if you think about the history of what's been going on in in the Protestant church, for example, uh, uh, probably most people will recognize uh, the, just the the book, N.T. writes, Surprised by Hope. Mm-hmm. And that's a relatively recent book. I can't remember when it came out, but relatively recent, last decade, if I recall, at the very least. 2007, by the way. 2007. Okay. Well, you know, I tried. <laughs> You take the Christian imagination and you realize that there's very, very little that we can say about eternity with certainty or salvation with certainty. Well, all of a sudden your gaze shifts from solely focusing on eternity, right? The narrative that we have of don't worry, we'll all be saved. We're all going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And it shifts to the significance of reality. Now, now the Orthodox Mm -hmm. church, for example, has had that in mind for the entirety of their existence. We, as as the Protestants, and this is in no way to undermine Protestantism, but we as Protestants rediscovered the significance of this and had this preached at every single pulpit in 2008, maybe, after every pastor had sat down and, and been recommended or had read N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope, where he clarifies, our eternal destination is not heaven, there is a significance to this world, it will be regenerated. And I mean, there's a certain point where you have to pause and ask yourself, how many times do we have to rediscover Christian history through a modern lens uh, simply because we refuse to read an ancient text or because we refuse to view the Christian imagination as it has been viewed before? Again, not an indictment per se, but it's interesting to think about the fact that this is something that was known and freely available, um, but had to become a best-selling book in my tradition in order for people to re-acknowledge it. Mm. Uh, it's just an interesting thought, right? This this reforming of Christian imagination isn't unheard of. It's an ongoing process, but it's an ongoing process that we seem to need to repeat over and over again, uh, depending on how willing we are to interact with ancient voices, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on how willing we are to listen to people like, say, Jerzak or... Um, or those who are kind of digging into this historical perspective. So just sort of a a tangible example, I guess, that sprung to mind for me.
0: Yeah. And I suppose like, I mean, you mentioned 2008 is the time when this became available. I don't think things move that fast, even in, even in something as um, freewheeling as the evangelical community. And so, you know, Granted, there's been a lot of those conversations since the mid-2000s, but a lot of that was a part of the emergent church movement as well. And so we're kind of in some camps, like that's old hat and other camps, like that's mind-blowingly new. Um, And I wonder if that's like, that's just existence as the church anyways. Um, And especially insofar as I'm I'm thinking about what um, Father Michael Aleska or Alexa
2: yeah, it's it's
0: Alexa, Father Alexa. Chris actually has the book on hand, so I'm thinking about some of his writings. And when he described orthodoxy in terms of that process of recontextualization as opposed to a particular historic iteration, if that is true, then it makes sense that there is this, if not necessity, um, at the very least a very fortunate possibility for new voices to emerge in different historic contexts and intersections, to revisit the things that have been spoken about and defined previously within the history of our tradition, and do that in a way that provides new language, granted where that is going to intersect with our current experience culture questions, and the frameworks that that is going to disrupt. And so on the one hand, like you could you could hear something like Or you could read N.T. Wright's um, Surprised by Hope. Or you could read um, Jerzak's A More Christ-like God. And on the one hand, you could say, well, why don't I just look at the footnotes and go back to the person who first presented these ideas? So I'm going to go back to, you know, in Wright's case, I'm going to go back to... The writings of Second Temple area era within Judaism, and use that as a new lens to revisit the scriptures themselves, or or and and look at the way that that's reflected through or refracted through the Church Fathers, and you know in Jerzak, you could read the footnotes and say you know this is Athanasian, this is this is Nazianzus. Let's let's just go back and read that, and at the same time you could make that statement, but I think. And this is maybe to Chris's point earlier about, you know, Jerzak doing the thing that we're already talking about and, and concerning ourselves with and asking questions about, which is that Canadian Orthodoxy, which is the act of recontextualization, which requires us to find new language and new descriptions of what it would mean to embody these things that have already been a part of our our history and the articulations of the Christian tradition.
2: Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I would agree with that just because I mean just you need to form your own universe as well, right? We can align ourselves with the with the universe of language behind the ancient Christian tradition. But um if we can't find any new words for it, then we have no words for I don't know, as as a Canadian, for example, for stumbling upon an unmarked burial ground. Mm. We don't have words for that in the ancient church tradition, right? But in Canadian culture and Canadian experience as a church, we do. And we need yeah. words for it. We need people who will address it. We need people who will talk about it. And so we do have to rediscover and we do have to rediscuss and find things. In our own language and our own words, and have our own Christian imagination here as well. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, we need we need to be able to have language for a post-colonial world, and a capacity to be able to think about the gospel in terms of a critique of that colonialism.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting that we're bringing up Father Father Alexa. Um, well, it's not really interesting. I think we talked about in the intro episode how we were essentially just espousing everything that Alexa was already saying. So (laughs) here we are back at father Alexa. Um, But he says in his preamble or his, his his preface to his book, Orthodox Alaska, which, Oh my goodness, everybody should go out and read. Um, Especially if you're a missionary, ho-hum. That there is much history in this volume. However, it focuses, its focus is not the past, but the future. Its primary purpose is to remind the Church that her mission extends beyond human concerns and issues, beyond politics, economics, and even beyond religion, as a subject it's popularly understood. The risen Christ commanded that the Gospel be preached to every creature, and St. John's vision in the Apocalypse reemphasizes the Pauline revelation that, in the end, Christ will be all in all. The visible, created Word possesses an eternal spiritual value, with out which Christianity can no longer be considered Catholic, complete, or whole. Mm. Um, but that's also, like that paragraph is also happening in, within the contextualization that he's speaking really obviously about the Alaskan Orthodox as being um, a voice which has a lot to offer the rest of Christianity. And not just he's not just saying it has a lot to offer the rest of Christianity he's in effect saying that if the rest of Christianity without Alaskan orthodoxy, Christianity is not Catholic. Mm. Um, And in effect, what he's saying when he says that, and like, he's not shying away from it ever in in any of his writings. What he's effectively saying is that to leave out any kind of orthodoxy in the rest of the world from many ethnic center is to make the church not Catholic anymore. And, Mm -hmm. The church must be Catholic um, or else this Christianity thing doesn't work, right? So I, th- I think, you know, with the idea of the emergent church, with the idea of emergent Canadian Christianity, or with the idea of Alaskan orthodoxy having already existed for 200 years, i.e. North American indigenous Christianity already existing in its own particular flavor for the past two to 300 years, maybe what we're kind of seeing from what Jerzak was saying is, is, and from what Jerzak was living is that like, we're probably really late to the boat here fellows. And, you know, we're, we're we're probably really late to the party that this thing has probably already been, has already been developing for two to 300 years. And maybe we just represent the evangelicals who are, you know, maybe the shouting has been loud enough or or maybe even, evangelicals have have changed enough that we can start, you know, to to tune into that FM band and and actually start to recognize the completeness that these things offer to our faith. Right. I think what Alexa is getting at, I think what Jerzak is getting at within all this, and maybe that's why we found it so hard to think about these questions that we laid out, you know, to, to frame this episode and go like, well, what do we talk about? Is that, well, You know, these are kind of obvious Christian truths when you get down to the bottom of it. It's like, they don't really, you don't need to argue that penal substitutionary, like penal substitution theory sucks. You don't need to argue against it, really. You just kind of have to say, well, there's other things. You don't need to try to hold somebody, you know, down at the pulpit and force them to to take the Eucharist. You just say, well, we really hope you come back again, right? Like, you don't you don't have to force anybody to believe any of these things and kind of in the fullness of time and the completeness of, of the faith, um, you know, the word of God will be all in all, which then is reframed entirely by the idea of the logos, right? Like you just, yeah. I, I think that's maybe where our divide with the, the Protestant thought comes in as if we just start thinking of Christ as being the word rather than, you know, the text in, Greek that happened during the late first century, early second century being the word, and then all of this starts to be contextualized much differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, at this point, maybe it'd be worth jumping on that. Um, because I think, like you said, when we we're when we were considering where we we're gonna go in this conversation, there was the question of like, Yeah, this is this is great, this is a great possibility, this is a great option, and it's a great alternative to, yeah, a lot of those things that we would, you know, either like grow up with or that we've deconstructed from, and you know maybe aren't super interested in arguing against, but would rather just ask the question, what else is there? Um, but I know in especially like when Duck and I were talking earlier this afternoon, um, it might be on the on the question of what do we do. Or how do we see the scripture in light of this kind of differing imagination? And what you're describing as like, you know, the divide between Protestantism, which arose explicitly in connection to this sola scriptura and having the source of the text as opposed to the authority of tradition or, or authority of, of, of the church hierarchy. It's a little jarring, or not a little jarring, it's extremely jarring to say that, you know, we're not going to think about the word of God in terms of this text that we have, but in terms of the word, logos, the person of Jesus. Um, So maybe I'll open up to Doug at this point, um, because I know there was a bunch of thoughts that you wanted to jump in with. And maybe we could talk a little bit about then what do we then do with the text of Scripture if then you're going to see and embrace this Orthodox imagination relative to it?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I I find this part fascinating because it's the closest I think I came to having a, a place where I could push back significantly. Dealing with the word is really hard. Um, mm-hmm. I love Jerzak's perspective. I would say that in most ways, I share Jerzak's perspective. But I've done significant study of of Christian history, and I think about just what that perspective does to Western faith, like Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical. However, a person identifies, like what what does that do? And mm-hmm. you take ideas like sola scriptura. And you essentially put it in the wood chipper. Like, it's, it's done, good and proper, if you accept these words. But I mean, I mean, sit and listen to these sorts of phrases again, for example. Like, no, Jesus is the word of God, and any scripture that claims to reveal God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh, that Jerzak mm-hmm. quoted. Yeah. And I mean, that's not, that's not so unfamiliar. Right, um, the way that we as evangelicals talk about Christianity, we talk about how um all of Scripture has to make sense and it has to align because it's this Word of God that's meant to be a representation of God, and the reason it has to be perfect is because the God that it represents is perfect. There's this deep attachment to perfection in light of god and and a lot of it comes I mean I can hear. You know, the the voice of various uh, parents, various <laughs> relatives in my head going, all scripture is God-breathed and is perfect for teaching, rebuking, etc. Now I get shot for forgetting the rest of the verse and training in knowledge. <laughs> um, and there's kind of that point. I mean, uh, when I was talking with my wife, she said the same thing. It's like you hear this and you go, wow, that just sounds beautiful. And then this voice from like Sunday school rings in your head of like, but if the entirety of scripture isn't just as perfect as Jesus, we may as well burn the damn thing. Like, what's the Mm. point of any of it then? If part of it is worthless, all of it's a waste because it lied to us about being perfect. Mm. And so, I mean, uh, since listening to Jerzak and since kind of encountering that for myself, I have tried to think about... What are alternative ways of approaching this? Again, not because one way is evil, but again, less of an argument and more of a, well, what are the other ways that this can exist? Mm-hmm. And Jurzak's is one of them. It's a perfectly acceptable one of them, right? I mean, we, we agree as Christians across the board, evangelical, Catholic, whatever, um, that the idea of God being perfect stands above all else because our faith crumbles without it one way or another, right? And we can all pretty much agree with that. That's very significant, right? I mean, right down to the specificity of be perfect as God is perfect, right? Very simple. So essentially, I mean, if, if you were to break down the approach of the church fathers in a modern way, and I'm going to have to be really careful here and you're all just going to have to accept that I'm probably slightly blaspheming as I do my absolute best to stumble through this. I mean, is it more significant to us that God is perfect or that our text is perfect? Um, What, what comes under the authority of what and what Jerzak is positing and what the Orthodox church would posit. And I'd argue what Orthodox faith in the church fathers would posit is Scripture always comes under the influence, the authority, the power of God, ultimately. And it functions more as, I mean, we have Jerzak. um, I don't believe it's Jerzak. I believe it was actually Jerzak's priest who he quotes, who describes Scripture as a mirror initially when you encounter it. And it says back to you the things that you are familiar with because it's in your language and it's with your cultural heritage and you forget to read The initial culture into it to understand it. Um, Scripture is a signpost, right? We agree that it's something that points us to God, helps us understand God. But ultimately, at the end of the day, um, is it more significant that the character of God is perfect or that scripture is perfect? And I'm not arguing that the answer has to be one or the other, and it can't be both as many evangelicals hold. But I'm simply saying that there is this other way to posit these things. Right? There is this other way to approach it. And arguably, this is the way that the church fathers approached it, which is that scripture is, I mean, in Paul's case, an incredibly significant church defining series of letters that pointed to the character of God. Right? Does does that invalidate scripture in any way? Do we throw the whole thing in a wood chipper for saying that instead of scripture is perfect? I don't believe so. Right? I, I don't believe that that invalidates the meaning of scripture. Um, you know, and, and who can legitimately tell me that they've sat and read a ton of Christian books and none of them has ever resonated with them to the significance of a verse in the Bible, right? I, I personally have never stumbled across anything outside of Scripture that's ever taught me as much about God as Scripture has. Really? Um, I mean, when I sit down and read Leviticus... And I understand that I should not sleep with my wife's uncle's parrot. I don't personally go, wow, this has unveiled things for me that Basil never could have. Just the, the depth of this verse really blows me away in a way that like the church fathers or the monastics or uh, C.S. Lewis just uh, couldn't compare. Couldn't compare. I understand just this depth of life. And of course, you know, you'll have angry people inevitably right now loading their shotguns saying the point is the entirety of Scripture in all its context. I agree.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is why any Orthodox person would tell you that the message of Scripture is perfect. They would have no problem saying that to you. I don't believe personally, again, I mean, maybe Chris can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't see any Orthodox Christian saying, no, the message of Scripture is all a waste. You're correct, wood chipper. The thing, it's 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 a waste of time, right? Come on, they've got more books than we do. They're they're, they're pretty pretty strongly convinced in the significance of the Bible, um, but there's this this certain level of um, I, I think the best word that I can think of is gentleness. There's an acknowledgement of the human nature intrinsic to the Bible, where at no point do they believe that people were possessed and their hand just started moving and saying Christian things as God forced his will upon these people. But that just as we claim that the reason why humans are allowed to sin is because of God's understanding and, and love of our autonomy and entire beings, so too he would love the autonomy and entire beings of the people who put pen to paper to try to describe this holiness that they've encountered right Mm -hmm. and again i mean this is just this is a different way of imagining it i have no doubt that some people listening to this are like that's just a heresy okay fair enough but at the Mm -hmm. very least think about how beautiful that idea is and ask yourself that if god is truth and goodness and beauty and all of these things would god write off the significance of that idea as well right if god is all good why would he write off the goodness of a being who wanted to sit down and write about himself? Right. Mm. Um, it, it's another way to think for what it's worth. And I think that it's really significant. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Monologue there, but it's, it's something that I've really wrestled with thinking about yeah. because I have all these voices resounding in my head from Sunday school of you can't do that to the Bible. And, I mean, again, I I think the answer of church fathers, for example, would be we're not doing anything to scripture. We're simply allowing it to exist and speak for itself and ask ourselves questions about how it came to be.
0: Well, and I think here there's the there's the disjunction between what we want to believe about the scripture and what we actually find there. And so the things that you're describing is like, you know, the doctrinal statement that this is the word of God, therefore this is infallible, therefore, you know, it's without difficulty, that it's, it's always going to show us and instruct us in the way of God. And I, I think my... Part of, as I've been wrestling with, like, this aspect of the conversation or, or wrestling with this question, like, what what do you then do with um, the scripture? So even if you embrace, like, you know, a high reading of the scripture that um, I think that, that Jerzak really embodies and, you know, is reflected even in our conversation with Jeremy Duncan as well. Like, at the beginning of our conversation, like, talking about how we honor and we respect the tradition of the scripture insofar as it points us and directs us to Jesus, who is the one that we are following and embraces the true disclosure of God. I don't think it's possible to talk about, you know, embracing the word of God as Jesus and not have an honor or a high perspective of scripture, because that's where we have the tradition of that revelation disclosure of God in Christ. That being said, the tension is to what extent this actually has continuity with the historic ways that we've thought about, described, and had theology of the text. And, you know, even continuity, not just with the tradition of the people of God in terms of Christianity, but also in terms of continuity with the history of Judaism as well. And so even as like a comparison, I've been rereading Abraham Heschel's uh, God in Search of Man. His uh, one of his works on the philosophy of Judaism, which is fantastic, highly recommend it. It's been a tremendously influential book for me. Um, but as he's discussing Revelation, as he's discussing scripture, one of the things that he says is, the Bible is an answer to the supreme question, what does God demand of us? What does God require of us? And it's easy, I think, to take that statement and then to run with it or to take that kind of expression of belief and run with it. I mean, you could even quote the psalmist in Psalm 19 saying like, you know, the word of God is perfect, or the the law of God is perfect. Restoring the soul, the like ordinance of God, like and his law and his instruction, like they're sweeter than honey to my lips. Like they revive the soul. All of these, all these things that really do sound great to talk about. Um, And what i guess we would want to expect from something that is or claims to be the revelation or or the disclosure of god and at times you know the record of god's word to us certainly within judaism you look at the prophetic tradition that's held to be the revelation and communication from god if not in the literalist direct sense that we might be familiar with in an evangelical or protestant context still in some meaningful sense being disclosed from god But then when you start to delve into what that text actually contains, um, so say Leviticus 21, and there's the prohibition against anyone with any kind of, like the word used is blemish. And so that could include what we know today or would describe today with the language of, of a physical disability. But also that extended to like, one of the terms was if you have a flattened nose, that you can't enter into the tabernacle or, or you can't enter into the presence of God, that is a communication of the will of God in pretty unquestioning terms. Like this is the instruction given relative to who may or may not enter into that manifestation of God's presence. And it pr- prohibits anyone who has or deviates from what we would maybe consider as an able-bodied person, which is extremely troubling Like I think about for myself and Lindsay, like um, my wife Lindsay works as a respite care worker for um, children with with disabilities. It's extremely troubling to consider a a portrayal of God wherein a deviation from being able-bodied is grounds for exclusion from his presence. And even if... You have the like an enjoined qualification that, um, you know, when Jesus comes there, or in whatever sense heaven is a thing, like, um, you know, God provides a way for them to enter into his presence through healing them, but like that communicates that there needs to be a fundamental change of their bodies in order to be acceptable in the presence of God. That's fucking disturbing. And it's really hard to engage with that and really be able to hold to those, you know, traditional statements that the word of God or the law of God, the instructions of God, the ordinance of God are good and actually disclose who he is. And I mean, you could jump into any number of things. Like you could look at the trial by ordeal for a suspected adultery in in Numbers 5. Like you could... Um, You know, you could look at the instructions given around slaves where, you know, there's a prohibition um, for the Israelites to have, um, like, you're not permitted to have slaves or own Israelites as property because, you know, you were slaves in Egypt. But then it's like, if you have slaves from any other you know, population or ethnicity, they get to be your property. And it's like, why couldn't we be consistent all the way through and say, like, don't replicate the oppression you've experienced? And so you have to ask the question, like, is this good? Is this perfect? Is this a disclosure of God? And on the one hand, it's an easy move to talk about, um, you know, the word of God is the, is the person of Jesus. But there still remains the question, what do we, or what is the meaning, or or what are we supposed to, or what's possible for us to believe about everything that's been in, you know, you could use the term prior dispensation, because it's unsatisfying to talk about Old Covenant, like, you know, the difference between the Old Covenant God or the New Covenant God, because, you know, if immutability is a thing, like the character of God being unchanging, um, you know that doesn't remotely solve anything because you still have at one point in time. God willing, in Second Kings 2, for Elisha to lose his shit over a bunch of kids. Um, you know, saying go up to, go up to Jerusalem, thou bald head, and then he calls upon these bears to maul them, like. In what way can we describe that? Like, you know, we honor the prophetic tradition. Like, at what at what point do we place that line? And I think the tension that I have, and maybe this is a long way of working around to it, is I find it really compelling, the possibility that's presented in, say, conversations with Jerzak or conversations with Jeremy, um, reading things through a Girardian lens, looking for subversion, um, considering the scripture as a mirror that discloses our projections upon God that are then clarified or dispelled in the person of jesus but you still live with the tradition of the text that is considering this text to be sacred that on the surface of its terms is attempting to communicate the will of god and through that description of the will of god the person of god and so I, again i suppose this is a long way of saying i don't know fully what to do with all of this um and there doesn't seem to be a, it's not solved in my mind by, by considering Jesus as the word because you still have a prior tradition ascribed to God. And, um, in that there's a prior tradition ascribed to God that in terms of the community that we're a part of sees a continuity between the revelation of God, you know, in Hebrews where it describes in previous times, God spoken many, uh, at many times, in many ways, through the prophets, and then in this time through his son, Jesus. Because you have that line of revelation and disclosure, it's not as easy to just do away with it, and it still leaves open the possibility of continuing distortions of the person of God via and supported by those prior disclosures of him. I don't know if you guys have any any thoughts of that because I don't have anything conclusive within that just a description of what I'm wrestling with in it
1: I I maybe do I'm not sure if it'll be helpful but I I maybe do um father Alexa talks about in Orthodox Alaska again the book that everybody should read um Mm. that uh he spends some time talking about the similarities of Alaskan indigenous spirituality and cosmology with Orthodox spirituality and cosmology from long before when they knew each other Mm -hmm. and how, when the the priests um, came over to Alaska, it was pretty darn easy um, to to communicate and and to kind of offer up these kind of explanations for the world, which were mm. really not radical explanations um, for the indigenous people, at least as far as father Alexis has. Um, there is a, uh, which leads me to, I suppose a word or, or something that somebody once said to me, I can't I'm really, sorry, I can't remember who or from where I got this, but I know it was an Orthodox person or an Orthodox reading or something like that. Um, they said that Orthodox missions is about going somewhere and that Christianity is the completion of their cultural understanding, that Christ is a, a completion of that, that it, it's kind of like the last piece in the puzzle. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of often wonder how much Christ was just the last missing piece of the puzzle for the Israelites. Mm. And how, you know, in, in John it says, you know, the word became flesh, and it doesn't say the word became flesh and then it became the word again, and here we're all reading it in the 21st century. Um, I, I think it might be worth, it might even be worthwhile to go back longer, go back prior to just the written text that we have, right? I think maybe what makes us biased towards these things in a lot of ways is that the text is there and we can read it. Um, and all you have to do is go learn some Hebrew and Bob's your uncle. Um, whereas the different traditions that may have stemmed from there or different, you know, human people, which certainly encounter the spirituality and the cosmology that we're discussing because, you know, mm. it's spirituality and cosmology. And these aren't things that are, you know, secluded to the hypothalamus. Like they, They exist within reality. And especially if you're a Christian, then these spiritual elements are indeed the physical elements and there is no taking them apart. Which means, what do you do about those? If if we're to think of all the other human cultures in the world who were alive, that whatever, that there must have been some kind of means to which they were also, they also encountered the the divine
0: and mm-hmm. also
1: in, encountered to that kind of uh, general revelation. Um, and with that being said, you know, those cultures, you know, quite a few of them just didn't have any written text at all. Right. Like mm. Blackfoot has, a, has text now. Like Blackfoot was a language that didn't that wasn't written down until really recently, and it's only linguists who have come up with how to write it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's also written in terms that only linguists can understand, which, by the way, is also a really, really young discipline. Um, mm-hmm. Or Irish doesn't get a written script until St. Patrick comes. Um, or at least at least it doesn't get a written script that we can easily access, right? Like the written script that or the kinds of scripts that the celtic languages had were so different from every other script that we have in the world that whenever asked whenever like ascii was being coded to get these different languages to be able to type them the space bar was a massive problem for this ancient irish language or this ancient celtic language so mm. i think maybe we have a little bit of bias towards towards like the hebrew text in that, mm. like, yeah, there is this really, this really important, really obvious line of revelation. Great. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that Christ was any less significant for anybody else, historically. Mm. And I think to also, you know, to take that as a two-way street, that maybe also kind of diminishes the importance of the Israelites without diminishing them. Right. They're just as Mm. important as everybody else and everybody else is just as important to them. Therefore the Gentiles can be Christian. Um, I don't know if that actually helps at all with what you were saying, but.
0: Yeah. Well, I think in part, something that came to mind as you were, as you were speaking was, um, sort of an orientation towards a larger story or a larger experience of God and a prioritization of that over and above, um, you know, the specific particularities that were connected to it at one particular time, place, and setting. Um, I don't know if that's a hundred percent what you were, what you were going for directing towards, but, um, because I think about, so even, so you know prior to this conversation um because I was reading Heschel this afternoon then I I, and the section of the book he was dealing with revelation dealing with scripture so I marked down a couple quotes and there's even one um well I guess I'll just read I'll just I'll, I'll read part of the paragraph um so he says the bible shows the way of God with man and the way of man with God It contains both the complaint of God against the wicked and the shriek of the smitten man demanding justice of God. And there dwells also in its pages reminders of man's incredible callousness and obstinacy, of his immense capacity to bring about his doom, as well as the assurance that beyond all evil is the compassion of God. He who seeks an answer to the most pressing question what is living, will find an answer in the Bible. Man's destiny is to be a partner rather than a master. There is a task, a law, and a way. The task is redemption, the law to do justice, to love mercy, and the way is the secret of being human and holy. When we are gasping with despair, when the wisdom of science and the splendor of the arts fails to save us from fear and the sense of futility, the Bible offers us the only hope. History is a circuitous way for the steps of the Messiah. And what's interesting to me is where Heschel then will go and draw upon the tradition of scripture to point to it are ways that I think then, or at times they're ways that I, I find I find difference with or find problematic in a lot of the ways that I've already described. So you talk about the law of God as perfect or the disclosure of God as, as pure. And then you go into the particularities of that revelatory tradition and there is that sense of disjunction. But I think in what you're describing in, in saying that there's a relativization of cultural particularity, not in far as to obliviate differences, but in order to say then, We have to see the cosmic mystery of Christ as a completion to all of our narratives of grasping God, as opposed to, you know, simply a rejoinder to this particular text tradition. And maybe in that way, there is something of the way forward, even if it doesn't mitigate the question of then, you know, what fully do I do with the particularities of this inherited text tradition? There is potentially a capacity to search out and seek this experience of the divine that's bigger than the words that we've ascribed, and also a capacity and a possibility of reconciliation in history. This again extends beyond the location of those particular text particularities or specificities. And in a way, that's potentially a uh, a pathway towards hope and an embracing or a capacity to embrace the way of a God who is ultimately compassion or whose ultimate answer is compassion and mercy without needing to be bound to the particularities of that tradition that we've been ascribed. Maybe doesn't mitigate the tension, but maybe um, provides at least a practice forward. It's not a bad place to end if we want to end it there. Hey, <laughs> Well, maybe, um, we, let's, let's end with the, I want to discuss a little bit, um, the last question that we, that we asked, of Jurzak relative to hope. And I had, I had a, a note to discuss the, um, or explore further some of the things that he was describing relative to embracing ultimate reconciliation as an act of repentance, as opposed to rebellion against, you know, in quotes, the evangelical system. But I think we can pass over that. That can be a part of a different conversation. And we'll yeah, we'll end sitting on on hope for a little bit. Um so maybe to set that up, um in the conversation with Jerzak, and and I mean the question that we're gonna ask all of our guests is like what gives you hope when you consider the future of the church in in Canada? And Jorzak's initial uh, response was, well, you know, there's not a lot that gives me hope. Um, And then he rejoined that saying that um, where he has been finding hope, you know, outside of that initial, you know, cynicism, and I think a cynicism and maybe better a pessimism that we've all shared in. What are your thoughts on his ending statements on, on hearing, finding hope in hearing from the margins and, and finding our orientation in the gospel of liberation as a compelling way forward in contrast to, you know, maybe the pseudo safety of deconstruction.
1: Um, I think what I actually previously said about, uh, about Jesus being the completion of, of, of each of those, uh, of each of those narratives, um, about the logos really being the completion of all all those things. Um, Hearing from people in the margins gives me uh, a lot of hope as well. I'm really glad that he said that. Um, If I heard somebody who was a Protestant in Canada and had converted to Orthodoxy and was living in Southern BC, not say something about the marginalized people in society, I think I'd be worried. Um, (laughs) Mind you, when he did say it, I was overwhelmingly happy I, I think everything that's happened this past week, um, in light of everything that's come to come to knowledge in this past week in, in the media um, with uh, the residential school in kamloops I, I think that's maybe the greatest point of, of, of any hope within within Canada in general um, is that there's this kind of within, Canadian culture, there's this giant pushback against, against this kind of against this marginalization. It's really great to know that it's, it's kind of not beyond the scope of what he's thinking is it's maybe the, the second part of it is that if it's really great that he's also said that he doesn't see a lot to be hopeful for, Um mm-hmm which I think is just so fitting of Canadian culture right now. Like the way that we all talk to each other about like, what hope do we have for the future? It's like, well, there's this government in Alberta that just tried to stop everybody from learning about the residential schools, even though the TRC happened five years ago. Well, there are these racist groups appearing all over the country. Well, there are these fascists south of the border. Well, there is this. Well, there's that, you know, one of our most major political parties doesn't accept climate change. Um, and not to mention the other the other party is horribly corrupt and sending all of our money to a bunch of, you know, nepotistic, um, or just, you know, sending a bunch, bunch of money to all these separate charities, which just happens to be nepotism that none of us find out about until much later. Um, or these wild, like, 18th century and 19th century, you know, preferences for Eastern Canada versus Western Canada, or... Um, I mean, heck, even the Anglophone-Francophone thing is still happening. So it's like, yeah, as Canadians, we kind of all look each other in the eye and go, well, what hope is there, really? Um, Like, I think far-right conservatives feel the same way as far-left liberals and like, well, we're all kind of screwed here and we all really don't know what to do about (laughs) it, but we think that our way might be the right way, Um, but we're not sure. Um, so I think him saying, well, we don't see much hope for the Canadian church is like, no, ah, no, fair, you are Canadian. Like, that's kind of the right answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just, I appreciated everything you said. Yeah, there's not a lot of hope, but yeah, if there was going to be any hope, it's that, it's that the TRC did happen and we're actually starting to pay attention to it. Um, mm-hmm. So not to pass the buck off on all the Zoomers, but I think he feels the same way the rest of us do and go like, wow, we all royally fucked this one up. and It's probably going to take a few generations of people who are way smarter and less us than we are to be able mm-hmm. to fix it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, where I looked was really different. I mean, I, mean, I, I would echo Chris's sentiments as well, but where I looked... I guess, um particularly because I saw that weird juxtaposition between the way that he spoke and the things that he was speaking about, which again was just striking um, mm. i I was really thinking like tim Tim commonly brings up the the aesthetics of faith, and so that was what was kind of rolling around in my head and <sighs> trying to figure out the best way to phrase this but it, from a perspective of aesthetics in a a purely sort of how i've experienced these two framings of the world um i've largely been again like i've been in baptist churches i've been in alliance churches i've been in a lot of sort of forms of of evangelical churches and across multiple countries uh, across two continents I mean, I've, I've seen a decent amount there of the way that evangelicals cope with the narrative and framing of the world that they have. And again, if this isn't a, an evangelical listening experience, fair enough. This is just mine. But um, it's not uncommon to see cynicism uh, and to see sort of a self-deprecation in order to cope with the difficulties of life in light of the way that we frame existence Um, jokes about us like coming along and finally being the one church to get it right. And we all kind of laugh and we all know that that's not true, but we're not really sure what is. So we make a crack about how Catholics are heretics and we all move on. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's kind of the way that we deal with our reality because some of the narratives that we have about eternal damnation, some of the narratives that we have about the Bible being this Sola Scriptura thing that we cling to And we really need to fight anybody who tells us that there are some things that don't quite seem to line up in it with between books, maybe, or between authorial intent or things like that. And that's just not acceptable to us. So the way that we cope with it a lot of the time is through humor, through self-deprecation, and eventually through sort of an extreme form, usually, of breaking it down, right, Mm -hmm. in order to try to understand as best we can. And often what I've seen is that ends in a state of hopelessness. I know it did for me. And I know other people who that happened to them as well. Um, Because at the end of the day, the narrative is basically a certain level of we're losing ground. Uh, There are people who are inevitably going to hell. We have atheist friends that we really, really want to save. And we just can't. They're just going to burn in the fires of hell forever. And that's really sad. And um, we need more say in the world. We don't have enough power. And all of these things that really are not, Orthodox, I would argue. Um, But what exploring, from the other perspective, what exploring this gospel of liberation, various other perspectives provides to me is a tangible way to move forward with the conversation that doesn't end up in an assumption of futility, where the only way that anything's really going to be solved is Jesus coming back and us resolving it. Um, We may disagree on certain points, we may be angry about the fact that we're kind of shifted around, we may dislike what political party talking with certain people is affiliated with, which really shouldn't be the point. But at least we're grappling with real love, real people, um, real encounters with those who we are constantly reminded that God also cares for, as opposed to just coping through some form of self-deprecation, right? Where it's kind of like, yeah, we're the church. We're not perfect, but we're the best God's got, right? Um, and I would argue that from this perspective that I've begun to shift to and that I've begun exploring, we see displays of Christian love that rival those of the monastics and the saints. As people set aside judgment, as we saw Jesus doing. Um, so one example of this, for example, that really stuck with me is I had a professor that taught me over the course of my degree. They were part of an Anglican church. And this Anglican church had established a residential school and they were seeking some form of reconciliation uh, to apologize for having participated in that. Mm -hmm. Upon asking the elders what the church could do, the response was that they could come and sit silently while this indigenous group shared their experience, their perspectives on life, um, their understanding of God, etc., and this this professor actually was one of the church members who agreed to do this and has been going and listening for months, not speaking, not interjecting, just sitting and listening. Um, which ironically, again, is something that you'll see a lot in the monastics, where they're known for sitting and listening for three hours before opening their mouths and saying anything. And... So I don't know. Some Christians may wonder what the point of doing something like that is. But personally, I see this patience and genuine care and love that Jesus talks about and demonstrates in Scripture. And that's where I see hope, I suppose. It's it's not that we need to go back to the monastic era to then find hope. It's that we need to embody the things that are beautiful, moving stories that we see in Scripture. Right. And it's not like the evangelical church is somehow exempt from that. But there's nothing beautiful coming out of it. That's not at all what I'm saying. I mean, you have stories of missionaries who go and sacrifice their lives for the sake of trying to reach people who would never hear the gospel. Otherwise, you have stories of people um, giving up years and years and years of their lives or totally displacing themselves to go care for people elsewhere. The sacrifices they make financially or, or with time where they are with their church, for example. But there's a beauty that we're not engaging with, right? There is a beauty that we're not engaging with. And when the paradigm shifts, when the world gets a little bit bigger, and when uncertainty has a little bit of a bigger place, not because it invalidates our faith, but because it's okay to be uncertain, um, I think there's a greater space for some of these ideas. Because... One of the greatest distinctions to me between the word as Scripture and the word as Jesus is I would be a little bit embarrassed, take this as you will, I would be a little bit embarrassed to reiterate the points of Scripture to people in certain contexts. I would be very hesitant to look at somebody and say, well, to be fair, Scripture says that we should stone gay people. We'd better get down to it. But there's no behavior of Jesus in scripture that makes me embarrassed to reiterate it, right? And if the word of God is perfect, the question that I have then, and you can chalk it up to culture, you can chalk it up to me being some sort of liberal, uh, treat it as you will. But if the word of God is perfect, then I shouldn't ever be ashamed of the sorts of things that it connects itself to. And mm-hmm. even if a Christian is willing to step back into the well, that's the Old Testament mentality. That is still a defense mechanism because you are a little bit embarrassed about the degrees to which the Israelite people were willing to go on behalf of what they believed God was moving them towards. And mm-hmm. I've never felt that ambivalence towards the actions of Jesus, being willing mm-hmm. to talk about or share them or think about the, the consequences of them or the way that it affected people. So... Mm-hmm. For what that's worth, um, again, personal experience more than anything else, but for what that's worth, I think that there's a significance to this secondary approach that does embrace a certain beauty that we may miss otherwise.
0: hmm Yeah. Well, and something that I really appreciate about the kind of approach that, that Jurczak is presenting and what you're describing and you know, for us to be able to shut up and listen whether that's, you know, from a historic perspective or in this present moment and of unparalleled importance, to be able to listen to those who have been harmed by our prior iterations of the gospel and the ways that we connected that to the formation of culture um, and tethered that to to our own quests for dominance. And so what I so appreciate about that is it pushes us away from the kind of privilege that can be bound up in our deconstruction. Um, you know, we get to a certain point where we maybe we have access to information that we that we didn't earlier, or we've we've come to hear different perspectives, and it's really easy to then approach something like faith or our articulation of Christianity from the vantage point of that privilege to say like you know. I was um, you know the gospel was misrepresented to me and you know I was jibbed out of this like you know the larger range of possibilities that could have been available you know I was oppressed by our you know restrictive systems of Christianity Um, and there is a lot of privilege in that for us to talk and think and act in that way you know as a group of, of three white guys and It seems to be the case that, and, you know, I'm, I'm certainly talking out of my own experience, but what I've seen in terms of those processes of deconstruction have largely been located within those kinds of positions of privilege. And to me, there is something not just liberating, but I think a necessary act of repentance and humiliation for us. If we are serious not just about tearing a prior structure down, but to embodying the way of Jesus. There is something very deeply liberating to move from the kind of comfort that we, we might ascribe to being cynical and holding things at an arm's length, and instead asking the question, where might or how might the liberation of the gospel be expressed now? where is reconciliation and resurrection happening? And if Jesus came saying, you know, I've come to bring good news to the, to the poor, I've come to bring liberation to the captives and freedom to the oppressed, that, to me, that gives me hope far more than simply tearing down a reductive structure because then at the least if we're able to and certainly in this present moment if we're able to stop and listen listen to the voices that have been excluded and listen to the peoples that have been collateral to our gospel then i think the hope is that we might be saved through that and we might actually be able to come in contact with the god who is the god of liberation
1: right I could not agree more, my
2: goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the best place to stop, to be honest. That's a great finishing statement right there. We'll quit while we're ahead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us in this episode of the Canadian Orthodox. This episode was recorded and produced by myself, Tim Harder, in Treaty 7 territory, the ancestral and traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Kenai, Pikani, and Siksika, as well as the Tsutina First Nation and Stony Nakota First Nation. We recognize the land as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. If you connected with this conversation and would like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Monday. You can help us to promote the show by leaving a review and sharing on social media. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at Timothyos. If you'd like to help support this project financially, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Tim Harder. This is a passion project. We're on the side of my real job. So your support not only helps to cover the monthly production expenses, but also helps to free up time for me to create more content and to expand the reach of the show. We want to thank you again for joining us and participating in this conversation. We'll talk soon. Peace.